What's going on, everyone? In this episode of the Circle of Competence podcast, I interview Nathan Reed, who is the founder and general partner of Capital Allocation Partners, a multifamily apartment private equity firm based out of uh, Arizona, and he employs a heavy value-add strategy for smaller multifamily assets to uh, raise the rents and to bring them to more of an institutional quality uh, asset that he, he's then able to reposition and sell at a much higher value. So I think you all will, enter, will be interested in, uh, in this conversation for a number of reasons because in it we talk about incentives, how he aligns his incentives uh, with his investors, with his partners, with his contractors. Um, we talk a little bit about some of the markets that he likes, uh, the coronavirus and how he's looking at things from a multifamily perspective, um, how he structures his deals, how he structures his funds, uh, how he actually uh, generates deal flow as well. Um, so I, I've certainly learned a lot in this episode and I hope you all will as well. Uh, stick around to the very end. I ask some interesting questions that I'm hoping to hone uh, over the next you know few episodes with different guests. Um, but he's got some great advice, some great answers that I think that I think you'll learn from uh, if you stick around to the very end. So thanks for watching and enjoy the episode. Good deal. Nathan, thanks for coming on the Circle of Competence podcast. I appreciate you taking the time tonight. Yeah, you betcha. I'm excited. Yeah, man. Well, let's dive right in. Um, why don't you tell the audience just a, a 30 second minute background on yourself and, um, and we'll start with some questions. So tell us your background, um, where you came from, and what brought you to real estate. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Arizona, born and raised, uh, went to ASU for undergrad and got an MBA at ASU as well. Um, I used to be a CPA, but I won't admit it anymore, but I guess I just admitted it on your podcast. <laughs> but uh, I, I let my license go a long time ago, so sort of have a, a pretty heavy accounting and finance background, but um, just really didn't enjoy it and uh, sort of made the pivot to full-time real estate pretty early on in my career. I, for about a decade, I did the sort of CPA controller thing. And um, it was great. It was great for a background, but it just wasn't for me. So, and I worked for a lot of real estate guys. And, um, you know, I think some of the things that I sort of took away from that was um, some of the things not to do you know, sort of doing the Charlie Munger inversion principle, like, okay, I see what these guys are doing and where they're struggling. I'll just make sure when I have my real estate company that I don't do that. So got a lot of a uh, head start from watching other people make some pretty crazy mistakes. Okay. Uh, yeah. You care to give a couple examples, just high level? I'm kind of curious. Well, I think we'll probably talk about some of this later and some of the questions that you asked or have prepared, but uh, just obviously leverage is such an issue in my business that, you know, you don't do real estate without leverage, but I think people just don't think about it enough in terms of when it might come to uh, what they're going to do. If, you know, maybe just the deal doesn't go the way they planned. And, you know, I think everybody sort of matches their leverage to what they hope the deal is going to do. So if they're buying a deal and they think they're going to reposition it in two years, they go and get two-year money. Well, <laughs> things don't always go according to Hoyle. So, you know, uh, I'd say that. And then I was just always amazed um, 
how heavy the staffing was at some of these firms. I mean, there's just not a lot to do in, in real estate deals and you can outsource a lot of stuff and especially now with technology. So, um, yeah, I, just being really careful with your overhead. There's just no reason to have some big office with lots of uh, people sucking down costs. So I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Those two things are the big learning lesson. We'll uh, we'll revisit the leverage piece as well as the technology piece later. Um, but as for your background, do you think that your accounting background has helped you? I'm sure it probably has, but I'd be curious how, how it's tied into some of your real estate work that you're doing with capital allocation partners. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd say, look, early on, right out of college, I had to sort of dig into financial statements of companies that I didn't even understand. I was on the audit side. So, you know, you'd show up and maybe you're going to be there for two or three weeks and you have to basically in a really short amount of time, understand their financials. So it's almost no different from what I do in terms of uh, the real estate side now, which is, you know, when I'm looking at deals, the biggest thing you're looking at is actually the financials. Um, I'd say, you know, aside from assessing the location and the building itself, you sort of want to see what are the expenses and how does it run and stuff like that. So I think it really helped me to be able to assess things fast. So um, yeah. Definitely Sounds like the, the financial, the financial wherewithal um, and just yeah. being able to, to quickly run through, you know, uh, a book of business or, or financials to be able to evaluate it, whether it's good, bad or otherwise. Right. Um, right. So you were in accounting, uh, uh -huh. you hated the cubicle life and you wanted to escape to full-time real estate. Now That's right. you started a property management firm as well. Um, simultaneous to investing in real estate T tell us a little bit about the property management side versus the investing side your experiences there yeah and what that was like yeah sure so um basically so i went out on my own in 04 and you know as you'll remember in 08 09 sort of we had a real estate crash i mean that 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 whole cycle was really based around real estate both commercial and residential and I was sort of in the middle of a couple projects at the time. We were actually converting apartments to condos, which was really a huge fad. And it, was, it actually made a lot of sense at the time. Um, but I just remember in 08, 09, when that happened, I was in the middle of this deal. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to be selling any real estate for a long time. Like anything I own now or anything my friends own or family owns, they're going to own. And so I quickly sort of realized they were going to need a good property manager. And what I found is sort of in the smaller buildings, especially kind of less than a hundred units or especially even individual units, there's just not a lot of good management companies out there. Um, and so pretty quickly I started a management company and uh, I'll tell you, it was just great timing in terms of, you had all these people that were sort of accidental landlords. And uh, so we were, we grew so fast. And also what was nice is I sort of started my first fund at the same time. And it was great to sort of be able to manage my own properties with my own management company and, but also learn on other people's buildings. You know, I was reading um, Sam Zell's book recently. Uh, great book. 
Yeah, great book. I can't think of the title of it right now. Am I, it's like, am I being? Am too, I being too subtle? Yeah, there you go. So, and I thought it was interesting that early in his career, he was also managing other people's buildings. Right. He got and, his first deal, I think, with a student, uh, a student rental. Uh, someone right. let him manage it, and he was, you know, off to the races after that. I think it yeah, was in college yeah. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wish I had started my management company in college after reading that actually. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so yeah, so we, we were able to sort of manage other people's buildings and some of our own starting in like 2010. And, um, you know, we built that thing up to around 12 or 1300 units. And I sort of always said to my partner, like, look, if we end up hating it, we'll always have this book of business and it has recurring revenues. Like a management company is actually a really good business in terms of, you know, unless you really frustrate people, they just keep you. So it's, you get this recurring revenue and it grows and grows and grows. And so we had about 12 or 1300 units and we decided to sell. And I reached out to some different potential buyers and over about a year period, um, I worked with Reality. They were doing a roll up of property management companies nationwide and we sold to them in, in uh, February, 2016. So got it. Yeah. Well, to hit on one of your earlier comments about technology and overstaffing, I mean, um, just my small, a little bit of observation mm -hmm. of management companies, it seems like they run with very little overhead and especially with the technology today. Um, I'm just curious, like how many folks did you have at the firm? What kind of technology what is it, was it like, you know, I guess 10, 12 years ago? And then yeah. when you sold and just talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Well, I'll tell you. So we were fortunate because in 2010, all these new startups were coming out with cloud-based stuff. Yeah. Um, what did, what cloud-based so did you guys use? So we were using Propertyware. Okay. And um, they're, they're pretty, it's them and Appfolio are pretty much the dominant players. Um which was interesting because some of the existing players just did not make that switch very well. Uh, so, so we went on Propertyware and it was great because just it's cloud-based, there's a great portal and everything, and it did help having less staff. I would say we were pretty much a one staff person per 200 unit company. Um, I've heard some people say they're trying to manage up to 500 units with one staff person. Wow. But what gets tricky is the phone rings and, you know, <laughs> when the phone rings, somebody, they want to talk to somebody. And uh, so, you know, but definitely technology helps and has made property management more profitable. And, and actually, that's why uh, Reality was doing this roll up. They were really trying to use technology to sort of automate almost all the processes. And I think they've done a pretty good job of it. They still manage some stuff for me, actually, some of the just like individual units. So right. it's been interesting to watch. So yeah, that, that's interesting. I actually was reading um, an article today about a company out of California that raised like 40 million bucks. That's a totally tech oriented management firm and they're managing units uh, out where I am in the Raleigh Durham area, which is okay. kind of crazy. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So to your, to your point, technology is really flattening uh, where you can do business. So yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good that's a good nugget. One to two hundred. I, uh, I I doubt that my HOA uh, mm. for my townhome was following that because I can never get them to answer the phone. Yeah, so, exactly. So it, it may be one per five hundred over there. <laughs> yeah, maybe more. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, 
Well, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, when we first connected, I remember us chatting about, um, your, your equities fund. Um, mm-hmm. maybe talk, just maybe give a little bit of an overview about your work and what you're doing in real estate. Um, yeah. you know, how you think about fees and sure, sure. alignment. Um, I know that we connected pretty deeply on that just because of our affinity for the Buffett, the early Buffett partnerships. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. I'm curious, you know, just to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my funds first. So um, we uh, manage most of our assets are in blind pool funds that have five-year lives, and basically, I sort of just copied the original Buffett partnership, which was, you know, a I think his was a six percent hurdle, and then he got twenty-five percent above that hurdle. And I pretty much just copied that, but some minor adjustments because it's real estate and there's actually a lot more involved than just like buying a security. So there's some minor closing fees when we buy a property. And if I sign uh, personally guarantee stuff, there's some fees. But beyond that, it's just the, the split above a hurdle. So and, you know, it's interesting because. Uh, I think a lot of my investors and a lot of the investors out in the real estate world they're used to sort of some splits like a 220 and things like that, like hedge funds. But um, they are so used to fees that I think they're, they were constantly looking in the documents to find out where I was taking fees, you know? So, uh, and, but yet it's, it still gets really hard to compete against some of the existing players that, you know, it, everybody's just used to these fees. So, you know, I'm a little bit doing what I did in the property management side, which was I was really trying to get everybody to the idea of you can offsite manage up to like 50, 60, 70 units. And everybody was so used to having payroll for a manager, payroll for maintenance. Well, we're sort of doing the same thing in the real estate fund side, which is saying, you know, we're happy to run a fund with no payroll, no fees, nothing, but we, we just want to get our fair split after the, the, um, override. So do y'all typically, what's your tip? I mean, I guess it's probably deal specific or fund specific, but do you pretty much follow the 6% hurdle? Uh, eight, we're doing eight right now. Okay. And then, and generally it was eight with 25, uh, split after that to us. But we're, we've definitely gone to a waterfall model a little more where there's multiple waterfalls because, um, you know, IR, our IRRs have been kind of like low 40s. So we feel like kind of after we've cleared 20, 22% that maybe the split should be a little more to us. A little bit more generous, we, yeah. Because of not taking the fees. Right. So, um, so on our most recent fund, there's a, the waterfall structure is just slightly different. Okay. But, yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So, um, but yeah, and, and back to the Buffett thing, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, just like you, it sounds like when I first heard of Buffett, like just his way of doing things just really resonated with me. And, you know, um, I just find the alignment makes me sleep so much better at night because everything I do, like just by definition is aligned. So even if you were sort of, you know, feeling like you could stray. There's no straying because it's just, that's the way it's set up, you know? So I'm so aligned to my investors and I, and I just, I like that way of thinking. And it really makes me want to drive my IRR higher because that's how I get paid. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're, it's, you're, it's a win-win. 
Yeah, of course. Now, are you guys raising, you guys are raising funds, um, not deal specific syndication, right? Correct. Yeah. I, you know, I, I watch a lot of my competitors and I'm probably one of the few guys that's uh, doing it sort of at least on a smaller scale through funds, you know, obviously Blackstone's doing it through larger funds and such, but uh, you know, my competitors spend so much time fundraising where I spend time upfront fundraising and then I have the money and then we can spend all our time on the deals. And Interesting. It, it is such a gigantic waste of people's times. I feel like it's fundraising day in and day out for each and every deal. And uh, you know, I think frankly, it's part of why we've been successful because once the funds close, we're so hyper-focused on the deals. There's no more, investor calls or investor meetings or lunches or coffee meetings. We're just hyper focused on um, running our playbook on the deals that we have. That's awesome. So, did yeah. now the first, so when you started your company, did you just raise a fund first or was it deal specific? Like, did you migrate to that model over time? I, so I migrated to that model after the great financial crisis because I kind of just wanted to make sure that from after that, that I always had some equity sort of held back. And I feel like when you raise it on a deal by deal basis, there's actually more risk in a way, because if you think about it, when you're raising capital on a deal by deal basis and you have a bunch of partners and maybe you need a capital call, how do you know that all those partners are going to make the capital call? And then now all of a sudden you have a deal that is short on money. And frankly, and I think one of your questions later is how do you deal with a deal that goes sideways? I would say that's one of the main ways deals go sideways. They just run out of cash. And then you get this partner dispute where one of them is like, Oh no, I spent all my money on a condo in San Diego. Sorry. And then the other partner is like, I'm not putting in if he doesn't put it in. And so we just like having the money there. And it, I feel like it protects our investors actually. Um, yeah. So but, that's a great you know, point. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go there. Um, since you went there, uh, deals going sure. sideways. Um, that's a good point that in real estate, you know, it is very liquid. And if you, you know, if you run out of working capital or you need some sort of capital call, you know, yeah. you really have no recourse uh, and you could have one, one investor sort of screw everyone else. So yeah, yeah. Uh, besides that, I mean, you know, let's kind of get back to that point about um, when you're an accountant, uh, seeing things go sideways, what to do, what not to do. Yeah. First off, how do they go sideways? Second. Yeah. So I'd um, say like, I'd say really there's like two major ways that deals go sideways. Um, one is having your debt come due at a really inopportune time, like say in 09 or say, frankly, I wouldn't have wanted to have any loans coming due in March or April of this year during COVID. I can tell you that the banks really scrambled out of lending for about 60 days there. Yeah. And if you were in the middle of a deal that needed to be refinanced, you know, it's go back to that Buffett quote about don't rely on the kindness of strangers. I'm not so sure that anybody would have been there. So, you know, uh, so that would be one way that deals go sideways. And I'll talk about in a second how I think that we kind of cover that in funds. And two, again, I'd say basically sort of underestimating the expenses, the, the rental revenue or the capex that you're going to spend which leaves you short on equity and then you know having the capital call issues where you know you've got these one-off deals where it was like raised at the country club and 10 golf buddies put 
a million bucks each in, but that's all the money they have. And then, then, you know, when you need the money, you can't get it. So, you know, so that's sort of how they go sideways. I feel like, um, how we sort of hopefully prevent deals from going sideways is a, we go as long on term as we can without getting crazy on the interest rate. So, you know, if a bank will loan to us at 3.75 for three years, but they'll loan at 4% for five or seven, we just go out to seven, even though we know that our average uh, deal, we've only held them for about 17 months is our average holding period. So we go really long on, um, on the borrowing, just because you just never know when you're going to become a holder of an asset because the world changes. And, you know, it's interesting that we're doing this podcast in the middle of COVID because, you know, I can tell you in March and April, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And right. I, I thought maybe this was it. Transactions might not happen for 24 months again. Um, so there's that. And then I would say just, again, the equity side in terms of having sort of dry powder around. And we, we sort of handle that a few ways, which is one, we keep money outside of deals in the fund. So in other words, we, when we raise a fund, we might only invest 85% of that capital into deals. And those deals are already fully funded with the capital at the 85%. So then we also have the 15% held back at the fund level in case we run short or just underestimated things. Um, and then we just have the ability to borrow money from partners in the fund. And, you know, we have some really great financially strong partners that are going to hopefully be there if things ever go sideways. And there's a lot of them, and including myself. You know, I keep dry powder. They have dry powder. We have dry powder in the fund. So, you know, we're definitely into the four engines on an airplane thing. You know, and there's a reason why there's four yeah. engines when you're flying over the Atlantic Ocean, because you might lose two or three of them. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully not all four. So, yeah. So it sounds like um, over leverage, uh, need for capital at the wrong time, maturing of debt at the wrong mm -hmm. time, um, and bad underwriting. Sounds yeah. like all recipes for p potential disaster. I'm curious on the the debt side, when you guys are negotiating, so you have your five or seven year um, mm -hmm. call periods, but then mm -hmm. what type of amortization periods do, are you typically seeing right now for some of the deals y'all are doing? Uh, pretty much 25 to 30, you know, okay. uh, but you know, our deals are repositions. I mean, that's our model and we can- Yeah, we should have gotten in that at the beginning. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, we'll no, no. Um, that in a second. So, but yeah. so basically, since we're repositioning multifamily, a lot of times the first two years uh, are interest only. Um, we don't really care because it's sort of, you're just paying down the loan either way. But so, but yeah, that, the models generally we're going 25, 30 years on amortization, but we might have an interest only period. And frankly, we may pay the loan off before it even starts amortizing. So, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, why don't I go into that now in terms of uh, the model that we're following, which is essentially, you know, are you familiar with Ian Schrager? Yep. So he sort of, <laughs> in my mind, invented the boutique hotel. And he just really, I think, understood that, you know, buildings are just buildings, but if you can make them really nice and uh, spend money in the right places that you can get excess returns and excess rents. 
And so I pretty much say that, um, which is funny because I have an accounting background. I'm the farthest from Ian Schrager as you could be. Like I'm the most left brain guy ever. But I get the design thing. And, and Steve Jobs used to talk about design a lot and how important it is. And so we really sort of over-design our properties and spend money in the right areas where we're going in and buying a building in a gentrifying area or a very good neighborhoods that we understand. And then we're just, we're really pushing the rents from sort of, maybe these were properties with a lot of deferred maintenance and they were just sort of tenants that had to live there because, hey, it's a brown box with four walls and it's near their job. We sort of go in and go, okay, what would we do to make this where I would want to live here, where my daughters might want to live here, and that it's safe for my daughters to live. And we sort of go and do the full Monty on the renovations with washer dryers, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances. You know, we will move walls around and make the units layout differently. But so, it, you know, a lot of guys in my business say they're value add real estate guys and, you know, and, and they do really well at it. But I would say that a lot of value add real estate guys think that painting the front door a different color and planting two trees and maybe, I don't know, changing the countertops is value add. And I would say, yeah, it is some value add, but that's not the value add we're doing. We're doing the heavy, heavy value add where we're trying to sort of get three, four, $500 in more rent out of these units, sometimes even six, $700 more where it's just, you wouldn't even notice that it's the same building or recognize that it's the same building had you sort of seen it six months ago and then seen it now. Um, and so that's just the model, right? And, and we can only do that in so many neighborhoods. You don't do that in bad neighborhoods. You don't do that in areas um, that are um, sort of lower income areas. You know, this is definitely people that want to have a nice place, but maybe they're just below the class A stuff with all the amenities. So that, that's pretty much our model. We've done it, you know, 25, 27 times so far. And um, we just sort of rinse and repeat on that model. Awesome. Yeah, we should yeah. have gotten into that in, in the beginning. Yeah. We got so excited. We just started digging that's in. That's right. Um, that's okay. So in terms of like the, because a lot of the multifamily folks that I follow do exactly as you're talking about. They will try and bump the, like bump the rents a hundred bucks a month mm -hmm. because they've added in, you know, stainless steel appliances, mm -hmm. um, you know, granite countertops, sort of LVT vinyl flooring, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of spruce yeah. up the design and inside, yeah. but not, not a ton on the outside. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. I, I mean, I'd love to kind of dig into what are some of the structural or, heavier value add stuff that you yeah. guys are, or may, maybe just go through a deal um, that stands out in your mind. Well, I, I, actually I, I sort of talk about two different things. So uh, one deal we we're doing in Tempe right now, which is near ASU, uh, which is the largest um, college actually in the United States, just crazy amount of students. I think oh, there's 70,000 on campus. So, so we like Tempe. It's a great little submarket, but we're doing a deal there where it was a master metered building and it had a chiller system that was just leaking like a sieve. There was not a unit that you went in, but you couldn't see that there had been water damage where the chiller had leaked. Wow. So frankly, every time that deal would go in escrow, they would blow out because they would ask for two, three, $400,000 credit to replace the chiller because it's expensive to repipe a chiller system. Uh, so we went in there and we just said, hey, let's just ditch the chiller 
and we put 40, it's a 40 unit building, 40 individual HVAC units on it, and we individually metered the building, which accomplishes actually two things. It gets rid of the chiller that's leaking everywhere, which is really good. Right. And um, it pushes the electricity onto the tenants. So our value add there was actually a little bit different than what we normally do, which is we were reducing the expenses by say almost a thousand a door by getting rid of the chiller. Um, but we were also um, giving the next guy sort of this brand new building with all of the behind the wall stuff done, you know, because frankly, that's the thing that a lot of value add guys don't do. You know, they, they fix the, the colors or the design, but they don't fix the plumbing. They don't fix the electrical and uh, they're, they're sort of trying to pass the hot potato off. And so, you know, on that one, we, we read our value add again was like mechanical electrical. So, so that would be sort of a unique way that we create value. And then I would say like, we're doing a deal um, in downtown Phoenix right now, which is probably one of the best sub markets uh, in Arizona, probably one of the better sub markets in the nation to tell you the truth. Um, it's just, there's a lot going on in downtown Phoenix. And it was just an extremely ugly building. There's nothing good about this building. It had the 80s style stucco. Uh, it had deferred maintenance all over the place. It had no landscaping. I mean, I, if there was one tree or flower when we bought it, I'd be surprised. So we went in there and did the modern sand stucco. And I always use a landscape designer and I had him to redesign the landscape to like a level that you would expect at like a, a, a low end hotel or something and frankly again if you saw that building before and after you would be surprised that it's even the same place and um we've actually been renting that deal during coronavirus and it's been amazing how you know when you have a product that just talks to people and is really nice and you didn't cut corners it's amazing how it just flies off the shelf on its own you know, even in the middle of coronavirus where, you know, the rental market was a little bit goofy. People were worried about social distancing. We rented almost that entire product uh, out or project out, say, in the last 60 to 75 days. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, before we get into coronavirus, because we'll have some definitely some some things to dig in there. Um, I'm curious. So how did you how are you coming across these deals or actually how are you generating? I should say generating yeah, yeah. deal flow. Is this on yeah, market, sure. off market? Um, I, I have some notes on that. I just want to make sure I hit the high, the high points on that. So, um, but uh, mainly our deals are sourced through the brokerage community. Look, these guys in the brokerage community, they are good at what they do. Like they, I mean, I know guys that have been in the business for 30 years that are still cold calling every single day. And this is just something that I would never do. I'm not good at it. Yeah. I, you know, calling sellers and seeing if they want to sell their building and taking rejection over and over again. So we really sort of are tied into, I'd say, all of the big apartment brokerage houses in town. And our model with them is sort of like this, that bring us the deals and we'll be the easiest buyer that you'll deal with. We might not be the buyer that's going to give you the highest offer, like the sort of drunk buyer, but we'll, we'll pay a good price, a fair price. And also if I tell you a price, I'll close at that price and we can get financing because we've done so many deals. So that's sort of 
step one in terms of um, being an important customer to these guys and sort of being like a go-to buyer. But then the, the flip side of it is that I tell every one of them, and I'll never violate this, that if you bring me the deal, when we're done repositioning it in 17 months, you get to sell it. Mm, that's, so, that's good. Interesting. You know, yeah. yeah. So they get to double in these things. And, um, and you know, we, I feel like for the most part, our product is very dialed in when we're done. So they get to sell a very nice building too, where usually when I'm buying, I'm buying, I would call a challenged building. <laughs> so, you know, in fact, the more challenged, the better in a way, as long as it's well located. But then I'm delivering a non-challenged building to them to sell to the mailbox money crowd, right? So my view is that I create bonds for the next guy, but I, I don't want to own a bond. I just create them. Right. So, and that's how we drive our IRR, taking challenge stuff and making it unchallenged and letting, you know, some retiree that lives in another state buy it and they can just earn income off of it. So, right. Right. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a great overview and sort of tie into uh to the model as well. So, I mean, I'm curious, this is obviously a, a volume business at, at the end of the day, right? Like yeah. um, there are some who are out there who, who, like you say, you know, they want to own it long-term or their long-term yeah. is five to 10 years or, you know, forever, yeah. as long as yeah. the economics makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in, in, in real estate, the, the cash flows sort of, once you have the, the, the value add part of it, it, it mm. you know, if it, if it goes from, 500 a door to a thousand a door it's not yes. like it's going to go to 2000 a door it's it's not right, like a, right. tech, a tech startup that's you know j curve yeah, yeah. it's you have to yeah. force that appreciation so Correct. um is that do you think that's always going to be the model that you want to pursue is taking it from 500 to you know 100 like at what point yeah. does does the firm you know achieve sort of a capacity right like i'm just curious about your well i think, you think about couple, the future. There, there's a couple issues which is like I'll give you a, a for example, for in Austin, I've gone to Austin. I've looked at some deals. I've talked to a lot of brokers in Austin, and I, I can't I can't tell you if this is a hundred percent true statement, but I'd say it's probably ninety seven percent true. Austin's a smaller market than Phoenix, but a lot of their deals have been fixed up already. So you actually could hit a point where theoretically, all of the really well-located apartment deals have been renovated and then there's nothing left for us to do. So, <laughs> which, you know, uh, I don't look forward to that day because I actually kind of like this model. But because of that, we are going to a little bit of a ground up model, but in the same neighborhoods, which is buying sort of infill lots, building rental product, townhome style rental product though. And, um, adding value by taking these infill lots that are a huge pain and most people don't want them because they're a little too small and building like 10, 15, 20, 24, 30 units on them. And sort of it goes to one of the things I didn't talk about in my, in my current business model, which is there are a ton of buyers for these bonds that I create. And so it's now it's nice to do 200 unit deals but those are institutional people generally that are buying those. Where when I build a, a brand new 24, 30 unit uh, apartment building, there are a thousand 1031 exchange buyers for that. So we like to sort of compete down there in that middle ground between like mom and pop and the institutions where there's just so much activity. Um, so yeah, so I, I, 
that that sort of goes to your question about you know will i do this model forever we're already a little bit pivoting to some ground up while we continue to do the renovation stuff right and i'm imagining i mean from what i can tell and just observations i mean there's so much capital out there looking for deals um but they're looking for the 200 unit deals and a lot of people don't want to roll up their sleeves which is what i love about your model is you got to roll up your sleeves Mm -hmm. be willing to do the heavy value add um you know potentially change the tenant base around a little bit if there's a ton of you know uh pushing the rents and a ton of value add going on. Um, talk a yeah. little bit about the, the ground up development though. That's, I work in, in commercial mixed use ground up uh, mm-hmm. development, um, large institutional in Raleigh, North yeah. Carolina. And um, mm-hmm. the market has been hot for a long time and yeah, it's yeah. just continued momentum. Um, a lot of folks say it's, it's Austin sort of 15 years behind. Right. Sure. So, sure. so I'm a little bit more familiar with the well, development side, but I, I want to hear, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you're seeing in the Phoenix market and what you're concentrating on, how you look at um, development deals. Yeah. Well, so, and let me just talk about one thing you uh, said before that. So, and then I'll talk about that. So, you know, 200 unit deals are great. And, and, you know, uh, we may find ourselves doing some larger ones, but frankly, for my model, I would rather do four 50 unit deals than one 200 unit deal. And I would bet a lot of money that we would make crazy significant amount more off of four 50 unit deals than a guy doing a 200 unit deal. I just think there's just more margin in them. So, you know, yeah, it's a little more work, but we're IRR driven. Like, in fact, you know, it goes back to that Munger saying about, you should always sort of know what your highest hurdle rate is and go and do that. Right. And so that's my highest hurdle rate for sure, the, the four 50 unit deals. It's laziness factor that brings people to the bigger ones. Because, yeah, you know, I get it. They don't want to sort of go out and deal with the construction or whatever. It's easier to have construction crews on a 200 versus 50, whatever. So, so anyways, I just wanted to speak to that. But, yeah, so in terms of ground up, like, my model really is this. And, and this is sort of what I'm trying to stick to right now is there is about five submarkets in Phoenix. Um that we're focused on where there's a lot of sort of half acre, one acre, one and a half acre lots that could fit 10, 15 up to say maybe 40 units. And again, not nobody really wants to monkey with them because it's a little too small, but we we've sort of aligned ourselves with a few local builders that can build that product really well. And in fact, you know, our whole business model is based on alignment. So a lot of times they're sidecarring into these deals in terms of as an investor or they're part of the GP structure. And um, it's creative. I like that. Yeah. Well, we just like everybody rowing in the same direction. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, no, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and I know some really good builders in town that really like those sort of multifamily model. And um, so, so yeah, so we're building this ground up stuff and really what we're trying to do is fill this like, weird gap that I feel like exists between there's a, there's a big push out here and I probably in your market too, for this uh, single family home for rent product. Yeah. Which kind of the walk up duplex or shared wall type townhome. Yeah. They're building yeah. so much of that out here. Yeah. But it has to be kind of low density. So, you know, in my mind, what's happening is they're building a lot of that stuff in neighborhoods that frankly I wouldn't want to live in. So 
we're, my model is that we want to do townhome style, tuck under garages with, with yards and amenities. And so I feel like that's like the next step up from an apartment, but it's not quite to the single family home for rent. It's like a tweener. Right. Um, and what I found is there's just a huge demand for that product in the right areas. You know, you've got to be walkable to restaurants. You've got to be close to employment centers. You know, it's got to check all the boxes. Right. But, um, and the economics are just really good on it. You know, what, like what do you typically build? build it for? Okay. You're probably about to get into yeah, it. So I was just going to say, you can build it for say, kind of all in like 130, 140 a square foot. And then you've got your land cost and then you're selling it for, you know, closer to probably like 250, 275 a foot, which is just cap rate driven. You know, right. it's whatever the rents are minus the expenses at a cap rate. So, but again, there's a huge demand for um, this product from buyers because you've now got a building that probably has a 10 year minimum useful life on all of the stuff in it, the HVAC, the plumbing, the appliances, hopefully. So they know it's going to be a pretty safe coupon for them in terms of it won't be very lumpy. And, um, and then also there's just a lot of demand from the renters for this product because we're in a housing shortage, just probably like you are out there, you know? Oh yeah. Heard- the, the prices out here are, well, I live in a, in a smaller town outside of Raleigh, but okay. in Raleigh, inside of the Beltline, mm-hmm. they are insane because the yeah. only way to go is up. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's why I love these little infill lots. Although, you know, we're not really doing anything high density. We're, we're in fact, we're generally not even changing the zoning. Uh, we're just doing the sort of 16, 17 units per acre that's allowed on R3 zoning. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So, so we have about five of those going right now and we, we did one and went full cycle on it and liked the economics. So then we are sort of, you know, I'm definitely one of those guys that likes to dip my toe in the water first and be like, okay, it's safe. And then jump in. Uh, I, I guess it's because I have an accounting background. <laughs> but once I know the water's safe, I'm willing to go all in hard. So, Take a dive, uh, yeah. What yeah. do those units typically rent for? Like, for example, if it's 130 a, a square foot building costs, mm. what do they typically rent for per square foot? Yeah, so our model is pretty much anywhere between about 1995 all the way up to about 24.95 a month in rents. Um, and that's a two bed, two bath, like a two, a two bed, two bath to a three bedroom, two bath. Gotcha. Uh, generally, not building any ones with that product because right. they're townhomes and it just. You'd, it'd be a huge one bedroom. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, although I'll tell you post COVID it's been interesting. Uh, one bedrooms are, are all the rage because people, I don't know, they just don't want a roommate. So, uh, I guess if you're sheltering in place long enough, like you would just want to be by yourself. <laughs> yeah. I think if you asked my wife, um, we actually just had a, we have a 10 week old daughter and, and we've okay. been, sh- you know, sheltering in place, working from home yeah. and she's probably about ready to kick me out right now. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, she, she's going to be, you're going to be in a one bedroom unit soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, yeah. Speak, so speaking of COVID, let's uh, let's cover that. I, I don't want to keep yeah. you too long, but um, sure, sure. so talk about how, you know, or at least from your perspective, multifamily has performed in your market, your multifamily yeah. units, and then sort of relative to the other sub-asset classes within real estate. Yeah, yeah. I'm Sorry, curious I'm your looking, opinion on that. I'm just looking at my notes on that. So, um, yeah, so 
basically, I would say in terms of COVID, in terms of just how it's affecting all real estate, I definitely am in that sort of it's too early to know camp. You know, it's interesting because I've heard, I, I think it was Steve Schwartzman, and I, I've also heard Bruce Flat say they think people will need more space because <clears throat> you're going to have these offices and you're going to have to be more socially distanced to make people comfortable. So now, granted, these are guys that own lots of office buildings. That was so, what I was about to say. Yeah, they're really <laughs> talking their book a little bit. Talking their book, but you know what? Basically, and I would say retail is clearly very challenged. And in fact, you know, my if I was just to be really high level on what I think COVID has done, even higher level than just talking about real estate, I think COVID has accelerated every single thing which is, okay, technology was being rolled out. Now it's being rolled out faster. Um, you know, people were moving to warmer climates from busy cities, like out of Chicago and New York and Boston. Now they're doing it sooner. You know, um, I think anything that people were putting off is being not put off anymore. And so... I think sort of the same goes uh, to like the retail apocalypse, right? Which is retail was very challenged. Now I think it's even more challenged. In fact, I wouldn't say it's I'm in the too early to know camp on retail. I'd say, you know, most malls are smoked. Probably most big cities are going to have one or two really nice malls and that's it. And all of the B, even B plus malls are going to go away. You know, you just can't fight the internet. Um, but I would say multifamily is interesting. And, and now I'm going to talk my book a little bit. Yeah, let's but, hear uh, <laughs> So one is we're in a housing shortage. And although it's been interesting, I think there's been a lot of buying in COVID because I think people are seeing how low interest rates are. And if they had any capital available, they're, they're trying to take advantage of it. But I, I think we're still going to be renter nation a little bit. And that um, both millennials and Gen Zs are just sort of like, hey, I'm not sure if I'm going to live in this city, so I don't want to put down roots. I'm just going to rent. And Capital Allocation Partners has this brand new nice building, and it's near all the restaurants I like, and it's $21.95 a month. That's good enough for me. Uh, but I would say where, um, where the challenge is right now for some people is, I think going back to lenders, lenders just want to be really careful who they loan to right now. You know, so you're not going to see new syndicators coming into the market or, uh, or even people that sort of only buy one or two buildings every five years where they're not really real estate experts. They're just sort of buying it for the coupon. Their loan to values are going down and they're having to put up a little more capital for reserves and stuff like that. So I think the playing field is still got some players on it, but I think, it's sort of like you had two football teams out there on the field and now you have like one, like just a lot less people. So, um, so I, I think that's probably the biggest way it's affected my industry, which is, you know, the buyer pool has shrunk and the lenders are conservative. Uh, even though rates are still great, they just want to be really careful who they lend to. Yeah. So, it, sound, it sounds like if you had capital going into this, um, probably in a pretty good position. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and good Bruce, lending relationships help. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good, good, good point. Um, yeah. Bruce Flat's my favorite real estate investor outside of Sam Zell. I, I can't really yeah. tell you which one is, is higher on my book, but I actually watched probably the same video from Bloomberg where he was, and I actually put out a tweet, uh, oh. a poll asking, was he talking his book or was he telling the truth? And yeah. a lot of folks actually, it was split pretty evenly, but I think, okay. I think the split came back slightly more talking gotcha. his book. Yeah. Well, so, the, the thing with Bruce Flat, uh, and he's got an accounting background like I do. He does. Uh, I think yeah. he was he was a CPA or a CA, whatever they call it in Canada. But uh, I would never want to be on the other side of a transaction from Bruce Flat. <laughs> no, I don't want to take any type of lending, uh, have a lending relationship with Brookfield where my real estate is 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 yes. the collateral because yeah, exactly. if they're lending on it, they they probably want it. They, they, they win and everybody else doesn't win. So yeah, yeah there's a reason they're so, that big. I mean, but they're good yeah. at what they do and they manage their capital conservatively and um, disclosure. I'm a, I'm a long shareholder uh, for, gotcha. for BAM. So it, it's been um, a great place to have money for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's, those are good points. Do you think yeah. now in the multifamily space, do you think that folks are moving in within the same city, are they going to move spread out? Is there going to be sprawl, or are they just going to move from high cost cities to lower cost areas, warmer climates? Um, yeah, because right. I'm in agreement well, that all the trends are accelerating. I'm 100% agree. Sure, sure. So I think basically um, that those generations that are sort of the main renter generations, which are millennials and Gen Zs, I think they still want to be where the action is. I just think they want a little more elbow room. So, you know, if you're talking about a city like Phoenix, I don't think we're going to go back to the suburbs, which was like a 90s and 2000 trend where people out here were literally moving 50 miles out into the suburbs to afford like a big house with a big wow. yard and a pool. Yeah. And uh, I don't see that trend really um, being there. But, uh, you know, I think ultimately they just want to be in urban core places, you know, Yeah. but not necessarily in Manhattan where, you know, I think I heard something about COVID about the number of people, if you live in New York city that you come in contact with on a daily basis that you could potentially catch the germs from, it was such a crazy number. You couldn't even believe it. And, and I started thinking about, I wonder how many people I come in contact with. And it was probably like fingers and toes, you know? Yeah. And theirs was like thousands. Right. So, you know, it isn't good for, for big cities. Although I would, I also wouldn't write Manhattan off. I mean, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, after nine yeah. 11 folks said people will never go there and again, again, and yeah. five years later, they were all back. I, I have yeah. a couple of buddies who work up in, um, or several friends that work up in New York and none of them mm -hmm. are currently in the city right now. Yeah, They're all yeah. back home with their families. They got out right. with sort of yeah. a huge wave hit. Um, yeah. So, but, um, well, cool. Let's, let's wrap it up. I've got a few okay. uh, questions to, to yeah. wrap it up that I'm, okay. I'm working on solidifying all of my final questions for all my guests. Sure, sure. But um, okay. let's start with the first one. What advice would you give yourself 20 years ago? Yeah. So I, you, you had asked that or written out that question for me. I, I took some notes on that. Um, so I said that I think for me, I would really tell myself to learn to be comfortable with uncertainty and failure, like really early on, because it's interesting. Failure is so like discussed in our society as like this horrible thing, but yet it's actually the biggest ingredient to success. I mean, you know, 
you can name very few people that didn't have crazy amounts of failure in their career. Um, like Zuckerberg comes to mind. Like, I don't think he really had any, like he started that thing and it just blew up and, but he may, know, he he may yet though. Some, he may yet. Who knows? Yeah. Fair, yeah. Fair enough. But you know, he's such a rarity. I always use him as an example of somebody that had a lot less failure, but you know, you know, you can go, look at Charlie Munger and all the things with his first wife and he had this child die and all these horrible things happened when he was younger. And so I'd say just, you know, being comfortable with uh, that and then finding good mentors early on, you know, uh, you can never know everything. And I, I think, you know, for me, when I really started getting heavy in multifamily, I sort of searched out a few guys in town that were really good at, at this business. And it's just made all the difference for me um, because you can just move ahead so much faster by sort of learning from their mistakes and, and, and being able to call them and ask for advice. And so um, I'd say that makes a lot of sense. And then also um, the third thing I wrote down was don't copy people. Like don't try to be the next Buffett or the next Charlie Munger or the next Jeff Bezos because you won't be like you're, you have your own unique sort of, set of skills and you know your own set of parents and siblings and the way you grew up and the things you learned and the, just everything about you is unique so your path has to be unique and i think um early on i was sort of i'm such a buffett fan i was like sort of trying to copy him and then i just realized locking myself in an office for 10 hours a day and reading although i love to read i'm a heavy reader that was never going to be me like that. That's his model. It's not my model. Um, so yeah, I think that those are the big things. Those yeah, are, those are, those are great. Um, I, I love to read too, but, I, but I also like to get out and I've discovered that in coronavirus <laughs> yeah, <laughs> working exactly. from home uh, this <laughs> right. entire time. So right, right, yeah. All right. Question number two, what person would you most like to meet today? Who's, who's alive today and what would you mm -hmm. want to talk about? Yeah, so it's funny. We talked about him earlier. I, I thought about people come to mind, the obvious ones like Charlie and, and Warren. But I would say actually Sam Zell, only because like I feel like Sam Zell has just done so much interesting stuff in a lot of industries. I mean, people know him as a real estate guy, but he's done a lot in lots of and, and also a lot of different real estate industries as well. Right. And he just has such a fascinating background and he never tried to copy anybody else. That's why I love Sam Zell. And I feel like he was underestimated his whole life. You know, um, I, I was reading uh, a book about Sam Zell, and I think he was Blackstone's first client or one of them. And I, I, it was the Steve Schwartzman book. And he said that Sam Zell showed up to his office and, and Steve Schwartzman couldn't figure out who this short guy was that was all rumpled up that had showed up to his office. And he didn't realize how successful he was. I mean, Sam Zell is just a, a character. So, yeah. and, and it, in terms of what I'd want to ask him, I, I, you know, I would just want to ask him sort of what he thinks his secret sauce has been. And, and I would also say, I, I like to ask this of anybody who's sort of older and been successful is, you know, if he's had any regrets mm -hmm. and like maybe what he would do differently, because, you know, that's the scariest thing is to, to hit a certain age and to be like, wow, I wish I had done this, this or this or done this different. Certainly. So yeah, T time moves in one direction. So yeah, that's what my, yeah. uh, that's what my dad always tells me. So, yeah. 
Um, all right, third question. So you can't yep. invest or operate multifamily anymore. What mm. industry or asset class are you pivoting to and why? Yeah, so this, I, I read this question too and I, so I just kind of prepared for it. It's sort of cheating, but I would say that I would pivot to the, the technology side of real estate, especially in multifamily. Like the thing that sort of blows my mind still is the way that landlords and tenants get matched up. Like how does a tenant find a property? And it's, it's the most antiquated thing I've ever seen. And yeah, apartments.com exists and Zillow exists, but it's still, they're clicking on these pictures and then they show up and walk around this apartment. And then we run their credit and we find out they have really bad credit. And the whole thing needs to be rethought. And I have some ideas how I would rethink it because, you know, I can tell you as a landlord, like when I'm in a lease up, the amount of money I would spend to just have like 20 highly qualified tenants show up at the front door and want to rent from me and just be done with the whole lease up versus the whole mess we go through to get there. I would, it would be a lot of money because you have to figure it's the final step to creating my coupon to sell to the next guy. Right. Right. So, right. you know, these leasing agents charge like say half a month's rent, a month rent, and it's fair for what they do. But frankly, it's interesting if I had a model where they said, Hey, we could bring you 30 tenants that for sure want to rent in your neighborhood. They've been pre-qualified. Here's their FICO scores. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting how that math would work. I think people would pay more for leasing if yeah. they could just not have to go through the dog fight that exists now. It's just messy. Right. Um, and, and by the way, I believe commercial, commercial real estate is even more antiquated. Can you imagine these CEOs of smaller companies wander around buildings and look at restrooms and, and peek at floor plans? Like it's just the most inefficient thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And there's no way it can't be done better. I know for sure it can. So if you so it sounds like if, if you're a software developer and you're looking for a good idea in the property tech industry, you need to reach out to Nathan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's a okay. That's that's a good. That's an interesting idea there. Um, I would just say the technology is lagging so far behind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to to my point earlier, I mean, you're starting to see venture deals uh, venture yeah. into the property technology space. I mean, it's been going on for for probably close to a decade, but you certainly starting to accelerate. Um, yeah. At least anecdotally, what what I've observed. So. And it will continue for sure. Yeah. 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 Especially as people just want you know one touch applications or entrance or access control. I mean, all the different points that have how you interact with a fixed asset. Correct. Um, it's, yeah. There's a lot of interesting innovations going on there yeah. where you mix technology and, and these fixed assets. So absolutely. Yeah. What is the biggest uh, current challenge in your life or in your business and how are you attempting to tackle it? Yeah. So uh, in my personal life, uh, you know, I have two teenage girls, so uh, you can just fill in the blank what my challenges are there. <laughs> that's, that's a, I don't need to say anything else. But on, <laughs> but in, on my business life, um, I would say, you know, where we struggle the most, and it's frankly part of the reason for the pivot to ground up, is just finding enough qualified vendors that can turn units. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just there is a huge lack of construction people and there's certainly a lack of qualified, reliable construction people. And so we, we just are constantly struggling to 
renovate these assets, you know? And again, you know, I'm not, these aren't 200 unit buildings, they're 40 unit buildings, 30 unit buildings, even smaller. And uh, so, and, and frankly, I don't really know the answer other than just continually trying to search out people that are trying to maybe grow that type of business and bringing them into the fold and, and you know, aligning them with being able to invest in the deals and things like that. But um, I, I think the problem is we're definitely in, you know, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs talks about this all the time that. Love micro. It, yeah, it, it's just not sexy to become a plumber or a flooring guy or whatever. And so I just, less and less people are doing it, you know. And, and so it's going to be a continual challenge. And frankly, I don't know who's going to solve it, but whoever really solves it is going to make a fortune, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I do think that trend is going to accelerate with my generation going into more knowledge work. Um, yeah. Just there being a bigger, bigger and bigger gap. Um, yeah. I agree with you. I, and I love micro. I've listened to several, several of his podcasts where he alludes to that, where in 2008, yeah. there were tons of jobs, job openings, but they were the jobs that people wanted per se. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. There was no money for, there was no job for a bond trader from Lehman. No, you know? <laughs> not anymore. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so last couple of questions, how can someone yeah. listening to this podcast add value to your business? Yeah, so I'd say uh, a couple of ways. Like, I'm always, if there's anybody in the brokerage community that sort of knows of deals in other markets that we should be looking at, I'd love to talk to people like that, especially in like, yeah, so I'd say, you know, uh, we didn't talk about this too much, how important it is for me to really know neighborhoods and markets, but I would say two markets that I look heavy at would be Austin and Boise. Both sort of fit that sort of idea that people are going to lower density states. Even though I get Austin's a big city and a thriving city, it's still low density, lower. Mm -hmm. And Boise for sure fits that. And um, just, you know, places that people are migrating to. And then I would say another way is just, you know, we're always looking for new accredited investors. So just reach out and sort of make an acquaintance. So if we're ever raising a fund again and they're qualified, investor i'd love to talk to them because uh you know like i said earlier we raise these funds one time up front and then we go invest for several years and so the front end is really important to, to get in front of as many people as possible to raise the funds so that we can have capital to deploy so awesome it's our it's our dry powder you know it's our it's our jet fuel so that's right yeah. well then that leads to my last question where can people find out more about you and your business yeah, so I, the best place would be uh, our website, which is capitalallocationpartners.com. And uh, it's being updated literally as we speak. I, uh, it's about to go live. So like next week, it'll be live with all of our projects on it and information about all of the staff that we work with and uh, information about me and, and what we do as a company. So yeah, the website's the best place and my contact info's on there. So. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Nathan, thanks so much. Uh, we've run a little bit over time, uh, but oh, no I, I think everybody's going to enjoy this. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation. So thanks for coming yeah, on. Absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. We'll, we'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks. Take care.